This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Indian residential schools operated in Canada between the 1870s and 1990s. The last residential school closed its doors in 1996. Estimates say that over 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children between the ages of 4 and 16 attended these schools operated by the Canadian government and churches. Many children at residential schools experienced physical, sexual, mental, and spiritual abuse. Residential schools leave behind a tragic legacy in First Nations communities, which continue to deal with the intergenerational trauma of Canadian state policy. Although the Canadian government made a formal apology to residential school students in 2008, more needs to be done to achieve genuine reconciliation. Today, we discuss the documentary, Lana Gets Her Talk. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and I hope everyone is doing well and you're staying safe at home. Today we're talking about a very interesting documentary. It's called Lana Gets Her Talk. Lana Gets Her Talk is an observation of Cree artist Lana Whiskeyjack as she works to complete a mixed media sculpture of a tortured face, the face of her uncle. Lana calls the piece Losing My Talk. The documentary Lana Gets Her Talk airs on AMI-tv tonight, Saturday, June 20th at 6 p.m. Eastern and repeats tomorrow, Sunday, June 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern. In the second part of the program, I'll be speaking to Lana Whiskeyjack herself about her artistic process and what she hoped to convey with her sculpture. But first, my guest right now is the director of Lana Gets Her Talk, Beth Wishard mckenzie Beth is an educator and award-winning documentary filmmaker who joins us now from Edmonton, Alberta. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have this opportunity. Tell me about how and when you met Lana Whiskeyjack. Um, I met Lana when I was working on a, an, another film. Um, the film was called Gently Whispering the Circle Back and it was filmed at Blue Quill's First Nations College where Lana was working and I had been asked to go there to document the work that the community there was doing um, with circles to address healing after um, as people were um, dealing with the traumas of residential schools. Blue Quill's First Nations College is a um, has reclaimed uh, Indigenous practice and uh, knowledge, and they were using circles to work through trauma. And Lana was part of that process. And when we were filming that documentary, I filmed uh, an interview with survivors as well as the children of survivors of residential schools. And Lana agreed to participate as a uh, as the child of a survivor. And so um, that's when I first met her. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the process of our interview, 
um, she uh, talked about how she used art as her healing process or as part of her healing process. And uh, she showed me a powerful sculpture that she had made um, called Lost My Talk. And, uh, and, and I could see from this sculpture that there was a huge story in the sculpture itself. Um, and so after we had completed the documentary, Gently Whispering the Circle Back, um, uh, I approached Lana and I asked if she would um, allow me and my cameraman to follow her process uh, as she worked on this sculpture that she had introduced us to. And she agreed to that, and uh, my cameraman Rick Gustafson and I uh, then over, gosh, it was almost two years, uh, uh, met with her on occasions when she was doing some additional work on the sculpture. And the end result of the following of that process was the film Lana Gets Her Talk. I'm so curious about the, the actual process of making the documentary was it more observational in that you would just follow Lana around with the camera and the cameraman, or was it a collaborative process? Was there a bit of interviewing that happened there? Um, there was interviewing. I I tend to try uh, and, I guess, um, efface the filmmaker. Like, I, I was wanting um, Lana to speak her story. So, fortunately, um, Lana, we would meet her in her studio. I would contact Lana or she would contact me uh, to let me know when she was going to do some more work on the sculpture and uh, we didn't and we didn't film every dimension of the process but some key key moments and uh, so we would go to Lana's studio and I would just ask her a few questions to get the conversation going and she would she would run with it um, and you know now and again I would ask a little question um, what about the color? Can you speak about the color? Um, I see you're wearing a bracelet. Can you tell me about the bracelet? Um, and little things that I saw in Lana's symbolic world that I knew that she would um, speak to. Um, and and gradually through those small questions, um, she she revealed so much in her artwork and also about her person. Um, and so it was just kind of teasing out the symbolic um, and metaphorical world of Lana uh, through her person and her art that um, finds expression in the film. But also an exploration of trauma, the intergenerational trauma that this community has gone through because of the residential schooling that many members of Lana's family are exposed to. Was this your first foray into the psychological and emotional impacts of residential schooling on people who hadn't actually themselves attended, but had family who were so separated from and so divorced from their own cultural legacy and heritage? Um, Lana Gets Her Talk wasn't the first because, of, of course, I mentioned to you, I did the previous documentary, Gently mm -hmm. Whispering the Circle Back. Um, and so in some ways, Lana Gets Her Talk is a sequel to that. But it is very much um, a my first foray into the psychological trauma and the sociological trauma that mm -hmm. residential schools um, uh, resulted in. And 
uh, I have to say, um, and, and in some ways I speak of both of these films in one breath, because Gently Whispering the Circle Back was a shocking eye-opener for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have Indigenous heritage, um, but became very separated from that as, uh, through my family's own history. And um, But I've always been deeply connected and sympathetic with our Indigenous communities, knowing mm-hmm. that I had that heritage and um, had worked over the years um, in, um, in, I guess, uh, here I'm stumbling. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had worked over the years uh, in the inner city of Edmonton, had seen the um, brokenness in our Indigenous communities, but not mm-hmm. fully understood where that was coming from seeing it very much as a manifestation of a poverty cycle. Um, and, uh, and it was not until I was in my 50s that I learned about residential schools. And that was a learning that came as a result of um, all the work around Truth and Reconciliation and the work of the Truth mm-hmm. and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and the work that was happening at Blue Quills was a way of... Um, uh, bringing that story forward. And so when I was asked to come and film their their work at Blue Quills, I, I, was, I came face-to-face through that work with mm-hmm. the impact of residential schools on survivors and the children of survivors. And at first it was just to be kind of a documentation of circle process. But as I interviewed um, the, the survivors and the children of survivors, I started to understand how deeply wounded our Indigenous communities had been by the residential school experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I was actually shaken. I remember looking at the footage and thinking, oh, my God, this mm-hmm. is what has happened to our Indigenous people. And I knew nothing about this. How could that be? How could I, as an educated Canadian woman, not be aware of the impacts of these schools on our Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And I, I was devastated at my ignorance. I was devastated that I didn't know this dimension of the story. Mm-hmm. And it explained so much to me about what I was seeing on... Uh, 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 and, but also it, it showed me the power of Indigenous pathways, of Indigenous mm-hmm. um, knowledge, and that there was so much resilience in um, in people like Lana uh, and um, one of her mentors who is featured in the film Gently Whispering the Circle Back, um, George Breton, is one of Lana's mentors. And he has since passed away. But um, when I had their stories before me, I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> This is such a responsibility that's been given to me to bring these stories forward um, and to do it with care and respect and to allow these voices to speak. Um, and so uh, I, I, um, I felt very overwhelmed, but at the same time, a deep responsibility to honor these stories and bring them forward. And, and so it was wonderful to have the opportunity to follow up on that initial work with Lana and to to work through the story of specifically that of a survivor. 
I really appreciate that you spent a few minutes of your day talking to us about it. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to share. That was Beth Wishhard McKenzie. Lana Whiskeyjack is my guest right now. Lana is a multidisciplinary artist from Saddle Lake Cree Nation Treaty 6 Territory in Alberta. She is the subject of the documentary, Lana Gets Her Talk, and I am so delighted to welcome her into the studio. Lana, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you. Your sculpture is called Lost My Talk. This is such an interesting name. Why did you call it that? I called it that for a few reasons. One is because the sculpture is based on my uncle, my little father. Um, that's what it translates to is in my, la- in my Cree language is my little father. And uh, he he didn't he didn't talk about his experiences when he was in residential school, but he definitely talked about the rage of of growing up in the you know while living on the streets and and other other you know social issues he had to confront and the other part was uh my own in inability or lack of skills to communicate my own um anger i guess in some sense. And fears. I have a friend who's a sculptor um, and has sworn up and down that, come what may, she will never talk about her artistic process. And she wants to leave it all up to the audience. Uh, all is in the eye of the beholder. But you went the, you went the other direction. And you, you collaborate with Beth to have her essentially document your process. And you're so candid when I was watching the documentary, so candid about why the sculpture is the way that it is, what it has taught you. Why was it important for you to share your story in those in that way? Well, one huge reason is uh, Beth was kind of the first to really ask me about an art piece that um, that I think spoke so many things I that we kept silent in in my life in my childhood and growing up and so I think it was just a really safe space to finally talk about the things that we kept silent in our family and you know our experience as indigenous people and you're so candid about the effects of residential school there's a part in the film where you talk about the fact that uh, you've cut your hair as a sign of mourning but in residential schools they would often cut the hair of their pupils to take uh, the Indian out of the child. What were some of the lasting effects of residential schooling on your family and on you as a child of a survivor? Well, definitely our traditional ancestral parenting was something I, I didn't go up with. I, you know, from my birth to when I was about seven years old, six, seven years old, I lived in and out of foster care and in different homes. Um, And so like just having a stable childhood was not, and of course this affects your attachment issues, this, you know, creates abandonment issues. This contributes to a lot of your identity of growing up without your culture, your language, you know, strong kinship systems and connections and land connections and all of this beauty that, you know, my great, my grandmother, my great grandfather experienced 
with that I didn't I didn't go up with. Mm-hmm. I had to go and learn and unlearn a lot. Mm-hmm. One of the the other things you talk about in the documentary is the time that you spent at your grandmother and the time that you spent with your uncle George and how George is very different to you when he's on res, playing cards, drinking tea, but he becomes this whole other person when he's uh, on the streets in Edmonton and Vancouver. Some of the remarks that I found most intriguing in the documentary were just your thoughts about what that urban setting and that anonymity of being in an urban setting does to an indigenous person who's already lost a sense of their own culture because of residential schooling. Can you tell us more? Yes. Being, um, like, I I think about, like, the, the different worlds, you know, of living within the reserve and compared to being in the city. And it definitely changes your your being of and how you interact and socialize, how you to even how you speak. All of that changes when you're shifting from one geography to another. You know, when we are in when we are in these spaces of dominant society, there's definitely a lot more fears. I mean, there's also different fears in the reserve, but there's a lot more fears of of being and a lot more kind of uh, masks or shields we wear when we're in when 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 we are in these spaces, urban spaces, and non mm-hmm. you know non indigenous spaces. I ran into a sculptor in Toronto whose work features dirt and sand from different parts of the world, and it's a way to locate the work within a geography and, 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 and space, you make use of soil and dirt from places that were significant to your uncle George, your late uncle George. How did, what, what did you do? So I picked, I picked the soil from Blue Quills, which is where, uh, you know, the residential school that my family attended and I also, I went to school, I, I finished my doctorate there, the same school that, you know, was taken over in 1970 by a lot of my community members. And so it's it's such a significant and special place because it holds this deep um, his, historical trauma stories to, you know, also contributing to cultural and language revival, ceremonial revival. And um, in helping to be this place of, of you know, returning to our, our our ancestors' way of thinking and being in this contemporary setting, and so, um, and then in the city where my uncle lived, now where I'm residing, you know, that taking the soil from that river, the River Valley in Edmonton, where you know our, you know, not far from where. We, my studio was at the time is this large, massive grave site um, that the city discovered when they were developing the land. But it, so, you know, there's just this constant reminder as an indigenous person in Canada of this history. I see it all the time, but when, you know, you talk to Beth, it's something she's only learned in her later years as an adult. So, 
you know, we, we never forget as Indigenous people where we come from because it's, it's written in the land that, it, that we are so inherently connected to. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that Beth said is the importance of your art to your healing as a person. How has art been cathartic to you? Um, it definitely is my way of communicating um, and connecting to the a higher intelligence and to my ancestors. It's a way of me looking within to find the words, to find the actions, to find the answers to questions that I otherwise can't find in other people. Or and so it's. it's Art is this kind of this medicinal tool of um, finding the medicine within myself to help constantly restoring the balance, you know, of of walking in beauty in this world. So it's definitely my my tool of education and communication and um, expression. And did you find expressing yourself and communicating? to a cameraman and to Beth, even if they weren't really interjecting themselves too much while you were doing your art, did you find that mode of expression different? Was it liberating? Were you a little self-conscious? I think it was all of that. Um, I always tell Beth that she helped me come into my voice when she first asked me in her the documentary, Gently Whispering the Circleback, where I met her, um, that that, you know, speaking through my art was such an easy way of communicating, you know, these these internal thoughts. And and so it's it is funny, you know, like how the art helped me come into this my voice and it was so wonderful that Beth was able to kind of capture that and nurture that. And um, and once you start speaking out there, it builds confidence in, you know, walking your words, if that makes any sense, <laughs> you know, <laughs> taking action behind your words and your thoughts. And so there's this whole synergy that um, definitely I'm scared, I'm confident, I'm, you know, I'm able to. Uh, I was able to to share so much because also of the relationship I built with Beth and Rick. Well, I must say it was a wonderful documentary. I was telling Beth I really enjoyed it. And as the subject of the documentary, I, I just want to say I really admire your art and your your candor in the documentary. Thank you so much for speaking to us on the program today. Absolutely. Hi, hi. Thank you very much. That was Cree artist Lana Whiskeyjack talking about her art and the accompanying documentary. Lana Gets Her Talk airs on AMI-tv tonight, June 20th at 6 p.m. Eastern and repeats tomorrow, Sunday, June 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you missed any of my conversation with Lana or my conversation with Beth Wishhard McKenzie before that, I hope you will check out the podcast. It's available on your favorite podcast platforms. Art can be so many different things to so many different people. It's a form of self-expression, but it can also be a form for healing and growth. For a community fractured by deep divisions, art can also be a mode for reconciliation. So as we Canadians from all walks of life have difficult but necessary conversations about moving forward in the spirit of reconciliation, 
I think art, like the sculpture we talked about today and the documentary that brings it to life, is an important way forward to ensure that we can try to put the past behind us and work in the spirit of true reconciliation. I'm sure I'll have more to say on this. I hope you'll visit the show blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank both our guests today, Beth Wishart McKenzie, as well as Lana Whiskeyjack. The technical producer of The Pulse is Nisreen Abdul Majid. Technical supervisor, Paula Deneen. AMI audio manager is Andy Frank, with special thanks going to Greg David from our marketing and communication department. But most of all, thank you for listening to the program. We'd love to hear from you. Please find us on Twitter at AMI Audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. This has been The Pulse on AMI Audio, and I've been your host, Juhita Gupta. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.